All right, so here we go. This is Naming It Real Talk, and I am here with Dr. Monica McLemore. Uh, Dr. McLemore, can you please introduce yourself for our listeners? Absolutely. And first of all, thank you for having me. And second of all, I'm really grateful that you're highlighting these important topics. My name is Monica McLemore, and I am an assistant professor uh, in the Family Healthcare Nursing Department at the University of California, San Francisco. I'm a clinician scientist at Advancing New Standards and Reform health the answer program which is a program of the bixby center for global reproductive health in the OBGYN department uh, at ucsf and i maintain my clinical practice at zuckerberg san francisco general where i've worked since 2002 and i'm really grateful to have a chance to be able to talk with you as a nurse as a researcher i'm also on the advisory advisory committee for the black mamas matter alliance um, and so for me, it's, it's really important to be talking about reproductive health rights and justice and how um, our current environment um, potentially will have a huge impact on future generations to come, as well as, as current people of reproductive age. Wonderful. So before we get into that, because there are some things sort of that are in the air around reproductive rights and and justice and legislation, I just want to back it up a little bit and just ask sort of how you came to your work and and how you feel like your work really intersects with social justice and how that's important to you both personally and or professionally. Yeah, I mean, I, I appreciate the question because, you know, in a lot of ways, we don't hear about how people come to their work. And my story is so, my personal story is so intertwined with my professional work. So I usually start off talks and saying that, you know, I was a preemie in 1969. I was born eight weeks early. My birthday should have been on Valentine's Day, but my birthday is on New Year's Eve. And it's really interesting because it's the year after the Civil Rights Act was actually signed into law. And so when you think about it, the idea that I would be that early at that time, um, I, I, I get to be both grateful and lucky that I'm alive. So just to start with that. Um, that also said, you know, I am lucky to come from a very cool family who's been engaged in uh, civil rights and, and, and constitutional rights for a very long time. You know, my dad started his career as a Marine and then he moved to becoming a cop. He's the first black state trooper uh, in New Jersey. Um, then he became a lawyer and then he became a judge. And so he's been involved a lot in, in constitutional law and civil rights. My sister, who is the original Dr. McLemore, she is a pharmaceutical chemist by training and she is a tenured professor, biology department at Morgan State University, which is a historically black college and university in Baltimore, Maryland. So I started off, uh, you know, uh, med-surg nursing in gynecologic oncology, a step down for GYN cancers or cancers of the reproductive tract. Um, and I've, I've only worked in, with, with childbearing families my whole career as a nurse. So I've, I've never done anything else. Mm-hmm. And so from where I sit, I always think about if in the same way that the World Health Organization, the WHO, same way the United Nations, UN thinks about it. Maternal child health and the, the health of childbearing families should be a barometer of how well communities and nations are doing, right? If you can't take care of the healthiest and the most vulnerable people in your society, something's wrong, mm-hmm. right? For religiously affiliated people, if you can't take care of the widows and the children and all of that, then something's wrong, right? So from where I sit, you know, maternal child health, health of, ch- health of childbearing families, 
that is the barometer of how well you are doing as a nation mm-hmm. in terms of really understanding your public's health. So for me, the, the intersection between, you know, the health of childbearing people and social justice, to me, that's, that's the, the, the foreground where you know how well you're doing in a society is actually played out. So that when you see poor health outcomes in moms and babies and people with the capacity for pregnancy and childbearing families, that, that tells me that there's something upstream that's wrong with your, both your priorities in terms of public health how you budget your health services, how you arrange your health services, something's not right. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and so for me, it's also very much a a symptom of a bigger problem if you're not able to to have good outcomes for childbearing families. So to me, that's the intersection. Mm -hmm. How I came to it, you know, as a black person, you know, it it is very frustrating to me that the statistics around you know, birth outcomes, infant outcomes, reproductive health outcomes are not much better than when I was born 50 years ago. Um, that's a real problem. Mm-hmm. And that for the last three years, we've seen an uptick in preterm birth in the United States. That is a problem. Mm-hmm. We need to start talking about it as such. Um, and even if you don't really even have an, an orientation to, you know, maternal child health, and even if you, you don't agree that childbearing families and their health is a barometer of a society. Let's put it this way. From an evolutionary biology perspective, we can't continue to have a propagation of the human species if we don't have <laughs> healthy, you know, generations of individuals who follow us. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I used to naively as a childless person always be really arrogant about the fact that, oh, I don't have any kids. But the truth of the matter is other people's children will take care of me in the future. Mm-hmm. Other children will be responsible for stewardship of the planet as I'm old. So I have a stake in making sure that they have what they need in order to be able to ethically and appropriately be able to be a a good uh, class of citizens who will, will take care of the planet and each other. Wonderful. And I appreciate sort of the, 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 the knitting it all together. Um, and yeah. I think sometimes people kind of get anchored in their own experience and or their own sort of struggles and value systems and yeah. not see the ways in which we are sort of, as Dr. King would say, like inextricably linked. We are. And, you know, at one point, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to, to see Gloria Steinem. She talked about that speech of us being inextricably linked. And she asked a very provocative question that I thought was really cool, which is, what if instead, if humans weren't ranked, but the metrics that we used were how linked are we? Mm-hmm. That is a really different way of aligning social services. It's a really different way of aligning health services. If it wasn't so much about a competition and ranking, but it was really more about linking and understanding our shared um, you know, future, our shared destiny, how, different, how would we make decisions differently? Mm-hmm. the whole of our citizens. I, I just think it, we would have a very different conversation. And right. so I'd like to orient my work towards thinking, how can we invest in a better future mm-hmm. as well as, as making the present better? Mm-hmm. Wonderful. <clears throat> so for perhaps some of our listeners who may not know, there was some recent legislation passed in the state Senate in Alabama, and mm-hmm. I also believe in Missouri as well. 
Mm -hmm. um, that really uh, was a rollback on reproductive rights for uh, the women in those states. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you can share a little bit more about your take on either that specific legislation and legislation broadly, and if -hmm. you want to provide a little bit of like a background and and a narrative on that uh, and how um, reproductive justice has been sort of attacked and dismantled at a legislative level and how that's going to impact communities. Yeah, I mean, I have to say that, that that there's a both and here. So one of the one of the principles of reproductive justice is that there's not just one answer. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so let me pull way back and just sort of acknowledge, you know, the work of elders and acknowledge the how we got here, right? Mm-hmm. So when Federal Roe decriminalized abortion, and I always like to remind people of this that, you know, there had always been. Uh, abortions prior to Roe, but what Roe actually did was it actually protected physicians uh, from being criminalized for actually performing them. And so there had always been different levels of state access um, prior to Roe, but the federal law really allowed for, for abortion to be decriminalized at the federal level. I always like to remind people that there is this incredible infographic at the Center for Reproductive Rights. And again, I'll, I'll send over some of these uh, web links so that people have access to them. That there are, there remain 13 states that have trigger laws that if federal row falls, that abortion will go back to being illegal and that people who perform them will be criminalized. So those laws are still in the books right now. Mm-hmm. So as we think through in the, you know, 40 plus years that that row has been the law of the land, we immediately have seen movements and we've re, re, you know, seen legislation at the state level to chip away at the decriminalization of fro. And that's shown up over the past you know, 40 years. In the last 20 years, you know, according to Guttmacher Institute and Center for Reproductive Rights, we've seen you know, exorbitant numbers of anti-abortion bills introduced at the state level as part of a straight state strategy to chip away at Roe. And I believe, if my numbers are correct, there have been seven Supreme Court cases that have been argued around different parameters of Roe. Whether it's undue burden, whether you think about Casey and Webster, so having different exceptions, whether it was the whole women's versus Hellestat uh, argument that was decided in 2016 that really, really uh, undid a lot of the undue burden language. Um, we've, we've seen this be a, an issue since abortion was decriminalized. So that context, I think, is really important in understanding how we got here. When you think about what's been going on in Ohio and Georgia and Alabama and Missouri, right, when you think about restrictive policies at the state level that have been introduced, this has been a long uh, uh, strategy that has been developed to continue to chip away at federal role at the state level. That said, there have been a lot of very interesting and amazing organizations that have been on the ground that are women of color led that have really been innovating and, and trying to get greatest access for individuals in many of those states. I will remind people that 90% of most counties in the United States don't have an abortion provider. So that there has been a need for tactical and practical support, transportation, housing, Mm -hmm. other types of pieces for people seeking abortion for a very long time. The National Network of Abortion Funds, which is a network that has over 70 different funds, half of which are run by volunteers, has been in existence for a very long time. 
women of color led that have been providing these essential services. So, you know, the way that I think about chipping away at abortion access is, is part of a larger strategy to control people with the capacity for pregnancy. And what's, what's scary and what's frustrating about Alabama is there is an exploitation of law that we have not yet seen. So let me provide some elementary fact-based information for your listeners. Mm -hmm. A lot of people don't understand that people who are pregnant retain bodily autonomy under the law. So that fetuses don't have rights, not, at least not in the legal de definition of life and death. So let me provide some differences for individuals because people don't really understand this because it's complex. There are uh, religious definitions of life and death. Mm -hmm. There are legal definitions of life and death. And there are religious or spiritual differences of life and death. And all of those can be different. So the scientific definitions are pretty standard. But in terms of what state you live in, and depending on what your religious orientation is, your definition of, of life and death can be very, very different. And so, you know, there is this sort of geographical difference, this, this religious or philosophical or spiritual difference in life or death. And then there's the scientific definitions. And so we have a problem when states, you know, at an individual level have differing definitions legally. Mm -hmm from other states and when that definition is in direct conflict with a federal definition then this is how we will potentially have a road to the supreme court to be able to make these distinctions and it, it's really interesting to think that you know it's a scary time to think that that people would not have uh bodily autonomy um who is a living adult breathing person particularly in the context when we afford bodily autonomy to people who have died, right? Organs cannot be extracted from dead people without their written informed consent. Mm -hmm. right? We've developed rules and ethics around, you know, what we think are the legal, the humane, the spiritual, and the scientific reasons for why we would want people to have bodily autonomy. And this would be the first time, at least in, in, in recent human history, where other entities would be afforded personhood rights that are afforded under the law um, that aren't adult or, and or sentient individuals. So it's, it's, it's really fascinating to sort of think through, you know, the ultimate agenda. From where I sit in reproductive justice, I, I actually have an even more complex and difficult question, which is, it is going to be hard to think through in many of the states where these laws are being passed, where we have a, a significant maternal health crisis, um, particularly where we see uh, moms dying at disproportionate rates to, from pregnancy and childbirth, we see high disparities in rates of infant mortality in the first year of life, how we're thinking through adding even more to the systems that are charged with carrying those individuals now that are having problems saving moms and babies. I just, I'm, I'm just, for me, it creates a, a need to have a broader conversation with wider coalitions of individuals from public health, mm -hmm. from social services, from health services provision, and from a whole lot of communities to talk through, okay, 
let's see if these laws do move forward. Let's say there is a SCOTUS Supreme Court challenge. Let's say we go back to criminalizing people who either have abortions or perform. Then how, what is our next move to ensure that individuals who already are being harmed mm-hmm. are not more greatly harmed? Right. Right? Because we already know that, that the, the largest proportion, we know this from Guttmacher, we know this from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the largest number of people who have abortions in the United States are people of color. So if we already know that, that they are disproportionately bearing the brunt of maternal health crisis, people who have pregnancies and are continuing them, how are we even thinking about ensuring that those who are already harmed and those who already have least access are not further harmed. Right. So for me, it's, it's frustrating that, again, these are battles that are being played out with proxies, right? You know, we think about people with public insurance versus people who have employer-sponsored insurance already have restrictions on what they can and can't access. The Hyde Amendment ensures that they can't use their public insurance for abortion care if they need it. So we already have a two-tiered system. We're just creating more tiers. We're creating more disparities. We're creating more opportunities for those who are harmed to actually experience greater harm. Right. Absolutely. And that's a structural racism problem. <laughs> Very much so. And, and I really appreciate you for naming that and kind of pulling all of the, the technical elements together to really help people understand, um, regardless of where you sit on, on the side of the issue, right. recognizing and reading the facts as they, as they exist, that the people who are already most harmed and are most marginalized um, in both ends of that spectrum, mm-hmm. whether they are either receiving, um, experiencing abortions and or um, living through adverse outcomes related to maternal health, they are historically underrepresented and marginalized black and brown women in this country. Yeah, absolutely. And I also think we need to be asking and wrestling with a harder question, which is who gets to make the decision? Who gets to decide? Right. If you're a sentient being, if we actually believe that that is the legal definition of being a free person and that you have not only bodily autonomy, but you have access and capacity to be able to determine your own future. Mm-hmm. If you can't decide how even your own body is, you know, cared for, is manifest in your own life then I, I think we have a real problem of intrusion. I think we have a real problem of not trusting individuals to know what best they need. Much of my research is really grounded in identifying and understanding that communities are experts by experience. Mm-hmm. There's exper- experiential wisdom that individuals have in terms of their health, in terms of their well-being, in terms of their being able to you know, make the decisions that they need to in order that are best for them in their lives. Mm -hmm. So if you take away that capacity for people to be able to do that, I think we are treading in seriously dangerous waters where the rights that that all humans are affirmed are are no longer going to be theirs. And and that is a fundamental problem. Who gets to decide, Mm -hmm. you know, regardless of how you feel about abortion, regardless of how you feel about birth, regardless of how you feel, the, the 
people who have to live with the consequences of those decisions should be the people who get to decide. Mm-hmm. And that's the part that, that I'm really, you know, wrestling with and struggling with is, is, that if we take that capacity away from individuals, then, then I, I think we have a serious problem um, in terms of, of health equity and social justice. So another question that I have for you, and I just want to shift gears a little slightly, and I don't know if it's relevant or not, but if you could just say, you know, in your own experience, maybe it's more of a professional question. You have been um, really at the center of a lot of the uh, different legislation issues and or representing um, these conversations in Washington with our people in political office. Mm -hmm. Um, what have those experiences been like? I don't know if you want to talk about any specific like yeah, uh, situations, yeah. scenarios, because I think that another piece for our listeners is that we often, many of our listeners are emerging professionals. Yep. And one of the pieces of the podcast is to help them better understand how they can actually utilize their profession, um, right. utilize their expertise and participate in social justice um, in a really intentional way, not as mm-hmm. an abstract, I'm going to either, you know, donate money or show up at a rally, but really right. sort of be in embedded and enmeshed in it yeah i I really appreciate that question so in 1998 um nancy woodhull was the uh editor and co-founder of usa today and one of the things that she did was she sponsored um a study to look at whose expert voices were included in the media when it came to health uh, and to public health. And one of the things that she found in the Woodhall study, along with some collaborators, was that nursing voices were represented about 4% of the time. And they did a systematic review of all print media at that time. Uh, they did a little bit of digital media websites um, and really tried to look to see what experts were consulted uh, at that time to really understand uh, whose expertise was being lifted up in in pop culture and in public media and um, uh, trade publications, that kind of 4% nursing. So you would think that, that our voice would be leading when it comes to issues around health and social justice. Right. But that, that study was repeated in 2018 by some investigators at George Washington University. And the authors on that study are Glickstein, uh, West Palm, and Mason. And what they found was that number had decreased, decreased to 2%. Wow. So for me, as a almost 30-year trained nurse, as a public health person who has a master's in public health, as somebody who's a PhD and a thought leader in reproductive health rights and justice, I think it is super important that all policies be informed by evidence. Mm-hmm. And since I'm a person who collects evidence, I think it's super important for me to translate those findings to the public, as well as to people who make legislative decisions around how dollars and other resources are allocated to protect the public's health. Mm-hmm. So I always like to remind people that five, uh, five physicians signed the Declaration of Independence. So we have been, we in healthcare have been deeply ingrained in the politics of our nation since its founding. And so for me, part of my uh, working with the staffers on Capitol Hill, whether it be Robin Kelly's team, she's a Democratic rep out of Chicago, to Senator Kamala Harris, to the Black Mamas Matter Alliance, working with Elizabeth Warren. As an educator, it's my job to educate. 
-hmm. So what I do is I explain our research studies. I explain, I teach legislators about our research findings mm -hmm. so that they understand them well enough to understand the direct consequences of their policies as well as the unintended consequences of their policy. So the first way that people and how I use my voice is my writings. I publish a lot of my scientific findings in peer-reviewed high-quality journals because I think it's important that science uh, be rigorous and that it be disseminated to the public and the scientific community. But the next thing I do, I take the next step of both writing op-eds to explain it to the public, and I use those op-eds to teach and explain pol to policymakers why something may work and why something may not work. I find that my data are, are powerful education tools because I listen to communities and I work with communities to hear from them what's important to them. And so for me, the relationship between being a public health person, a clinician, a citizen, as well as a, a teacher and a, a professor, is that it's my job to educate both the public and the people who are charged with making policies to both protect and support public health, to have the best evidence to know that their policies will be effective. And so for me, if, if people join their professional organizations and their professional organizations have lobby day or day on the hill or some opportunity to meet the staff people who really uh, do the background research to understand bills and policies as they're crafting them, you can serve as a teacher. You can serve as a translator. You can serve as an educator to help them understand those research findings mm -hmm. and the, the intended and the unintended consequences of the potential legislation that they're trying to pull forward. So oh, that's what I do. I, I do a lot of that in DC. Yeah. A lot of teaching. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. That's wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. And there's one more other thing that you do that's central to uh, some of the work that we do on naming it, although I think I personally have a, a lot of room to grow on this, is that you happen to be fairly uh, prolific and uh, super active on Twitter. I am a social media earlier adopter. So I, want, I would love to tell your listeners, if the, even if they don't ever want to tweet, this is one of the reasons why you should be on Twitter, okay? I'm going to give you three reasons. Number one, in a democracy, if, if our leaders have chosen that that's the primary form of communication that they're going to use with the citizens, then we need to use it. I know people don't like it when I say that, but we haven't had a formal press conference since I don't remember when. And so if the president and your elected officials are on Twitter and they're using that to communicate, we got to be on if you wanna call yourself a citizen. Number two, for students, learners, faculty, you don't ever have to tweet, but you can follow your professional organizations. You can follow the journals that you read, the journals that you publish in. A lot of people don't realize, but on Tuesday mornings is when most journals drop their table of contents, as well as sometimes they will have a free open source article that they will tweet on Twitter that you can't get because normally it's behind a firewall. So even if you're never going to send out a tweet, you can use Twitter to follow the, the journals, the professional organizations, so that you can actually get free content. Mm -hmm. The final reason that, that you want your listeners to think about being prolific on Twitter is 
when people go to conferences or tweeting from meetings, I wrote a piece about this. And in fact, I'll send this to you so you have the links for the, your listeners. We wrote a couple of pieces in the Huffington Post about the best practices around how to tweet from meetings or tweet from conferences. Mm-hmm. It is game changing. Like I, I have been traveling and I have not been able to attend the American College of Nurse Mid- with Midwives meeting, which is going on in Washington, D.C. right now. But people were tweeting photographs of slides. People were tweeting out uh, uh, snippets of Dorothy Roberts's incredible work. She's the uh, CDTM Alexander Endowed Professor of the Law at Penn. Amazing black woman who wrote Killing the Black Body and whose work has been intersectional in the law and reproductive justice for years. She was the keynote speaker. I couldn't be there. People were tweeting out snippets of her talk. They were snipping out uh, quotes from her speech photos that she had in her slide set. It is a great way to attend a meeting, especially if people use the meeting hashtag. You can just go back and read through all the hashtags. Mm-hmm. You don't even have to be looking at it in real time. So one thing that people, they get overwhelmed a lot of times when they start up social media, be a lurker. Don't, don't push anything out, but just bring, be selective about what you bring in. My good friend, Kenneth Burton once said that, that, uh, social media is like drinking out of a fire hose. You don't drink out of it, you sip. And so it's easier to take little snippets from little places to be intentional about how you absorb that content. But if you're going to be a lurker, follow your professional organization. Follow your teachers. Follow the people whose work you read. You never have to send a note. You never have to send a tweet. In the, in, when Twitter first came out, if you didn't log into your account at least once a month and send out one tweet, they would delete your account. They don't do that anymore. Um, <laughs> so you can actually look. You can just view the content, watch your feed. You never have to send anything out, but you can just take in that information as you see fit. The other be- go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the other best practice, people don't notice this, but um, I have an hour-long commute regardless of how I get wherever I'm going. I usually look at it. If I'm on the bus or if I'm on the BART, <laughs> I, I, you know, that is, those are, that's like time when I could probably could be reading a book or doing other things, but I do my social media on my commute Yeah, when I'm not driving. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, a big thing that, that naming it, you know, naming it sort of started uh, in the midst of a lot of political and different kind of issues. And um, this year we've kind of, carved out a little corner of our time on the podcast on our, on our, our regular show to do a little bit of a campaign 2020 update. And mm-hmm. I think that's yeah. one of the offerings that um, I would like to post back to our listeners is to yes, follow all 20 plus of these candidates follow them. stay engage with them because, you know, and I was saying, I was like, there's no website that has a really good summary or there's nothing, you know, like, well, who's putting all this information together? Nope. And, and you're absolutely right. If that, if, if they are all, if they have collectively decided that Twitter is going to be the platform where they are consistently present and sharing their messages, then we, then that's, that's the best place to get the info from. And more than half of the candidates are ac- actual tweeters themselves. So, you know, if my experience has been, I follow all my elected representatives, mm-hmm. you know, if, if you're not interested in following your, you know, journal or your professional organization, find out your elected representatives and follow them. Find out your alma mater schools and follow them, right? I mean, you, you can find trusted sources to be able to follow. 
One group that I, I will say that I'm, I'm very proud that I follow is She the People. And She the People was one of the first groups um, on the gate out, and they hosted that incredible forum in Texas yes. with nine uh, of the 23 Democratic candidates to talk through issues specific to women and women of color. And She the People is, is run by women of color, um, one of the most uh, consistent voting constituencies in the country. And so they, they live streamed it both on Twitter and Facebook. And it was very important to be able to see that level of engagement. One of the reasons I'm so prolific, though, in, in terms of the media is reporters hit me up on Twitter all the time. They will ask me very quickly, Dr. McLemore, will you give us a written statement or can I call you in 10 minutes or will you tweet me a quote that I can put in my piece? It is a place where reporters hang out wanting to hear from the public. So if you are interested in really getting your voice out there, if you're really, really interested in being able to opine, um, there are a ton of health reporters, at least, on Twitter. Wonderful. That is a great tip. Mm-hmm. So, um, got a few more minutes with you. I know you got to scoot off to your next engagement. Um, did you want to share anything about um, the Black Mamas Matter initiative? Yeah, yeah. And I also want to share why I'm running off. Um, because at 4 o'clock today, 7 Eastern, a sister song, the Women's Re- uh, Reproductive Justice Collective, um, in Atlanta, Georgia, um, also known as the mothership for a lot of us, um, is hosting a national uh, phone call um, to really bring in, and I think there's something like 70 organizations that have signed on to participating with that call, along with the Movement for Black Lives, the Highlander Institute, uh, Moms Rising, a whole host of organizations to talk about you know, what communities can be doing in the context of these legislative bans and sort of really thinking through the assaults on reproductive health rights and justice. So Sister Song is, is really the people we take our, our marching orders from. Sister Song also happens to be the organization that fiscally sponsors the Black Mamas Matter Alliance. Mm-hmm. The Black Mamas Matter Alliance is a, a, an alliance that represents 21 uh, kindred partners, uh, a huge host of collaborators representing 14 states in the United States. Uh, that serves as a full-on alliance to be able to really lift up uh, holistic care uh, as well as decolonizing research with form by Black Mamas. And so I, I joined the advisory committee this year, and you know we we're coming off a month later of our Black Maternal Health Awareness Week, where for the first time ever, uh, Representative Alma Adams and Representative Lauren Underwood, who happens to be a nurse, uh, developed the Black Maternal health caucus. And it now is my understanding has over 58 members of the house and Senate who have signed on to that caucus. And it's really exciting to actually have a specific group of individuals who are aligned with the congressional black caucus health brain trust to have a space where we can talk about black maternal health specifically in the context of the federal government and how to be thinking about different demonstration projects and different ways to be utilizing the public's dollars to improve black maternal health using public health approaches. So I've been very, very excited to participate in that work. And one of the things that I think is so important about the Black Mamas Matter Alliance, and we are having our full alliance meeting in Atlanta in June, is to really be thinking through continued ways to align social determinants of health and clinical determinants of health and the social safety net and health services provision to really uh, provide a, a new roadmap 
in terms of really looking at assets and to see how communities led by women of color can actually thrive. You know, living and surviving is not enough. We actually, communities know how to do this. We know what we need. If we could just unleash that creativity of those communities, then we could probably make this all different. Yeah. Wonderful. Wonderful. So a closing question that I have for you, um, naming a podcast is dedicated to calling out and in the elephant in the room and sort of the elephant being anywhere from all the isms of oppression uh, to other things that aren't being said. Are there any elephants that you'd like to name that you haven't already done so? I think um, making sure we see all the isms, but for me, the Massage noir is, is something that I think is super huge, really looking at the intersections between, you know, misogyny and, and, and sexism and racism and how that's experienced by black women. And I think we need to have way more attention to the murders and deaths of our trans and non-binary women of color. It is just an underreported uh, epidemic and crisis that I really think that, 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 that is going, it's a shame. Um, and so the number of non-binary and trans individuals who, you know, are being murdered and they're not being investigated, it, I think it is, is really, really um, shameful. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Thank you so much for saying that. So uh, as we sort of wrap up, um, our listeners know that I will link up all of the different resources, references in our newsletter. So I'll compile all those things together and share that with you, with our listeners through our newsletter. And just so you can remind them, where can they find you on social media? I am at Macklemore, M-R. My uh, Macklemore is my last name. M is my Monica for my first name. R is Rose. That's my middle name. So it's at Macklemore, M-R on all platforms. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Macklemore. This has been beyond amazing, insightful. Uh, thank you for your work. Thank you for really showing, you know, the next generation how to do it. And uh, I, I know that so many people look to you as a model and, the way that you engage on all these different levels, as you mentioned, is, is deeply critical that, you know, we can't afford to just sort of sit in one house and, and, and ignore all the others. And so I appreciate your ability to show us that you can be a clinician, an educator, uh, uh, engaged in public policy and activism, walk in social justice, do that all at the same time, you know? And be a really cool, goofy person. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Y'all didn't know. She's so, she's so much fun. So, if you ever get a chance to come out to the Bay Area, um, hear any of her lectures, or again, engage with her on Twitter because she is definitely on there. Um, and she will tweet at you and, and converse and engage with you. So, yes, um, please know that she's one of the best. So, we just really appreciate you for joining us on Naming It Podcast. Well, I'm grateful for your work and thank you for having me. Wonderful. Thank you.